This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. It's been four months since the Brexit vote stunned global markets, and while we now have some clarity about what to expect and when to expect it, plenty of uncertainty remains. I'm joined today by Hugh Pill, Goldman Sachs' chief European economist, to discuss the latest developments, how negotiations might play out, and the implications for central bank policies and growth. Hugh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You were last on the program in June. There's been a lot of talk since then about how Brexit will take shape with what's being called a hard Brexit looking more likely. There's no one definition of that. What does it mean to you, a hard Brexit? Well, I think when I was last here, we talked about the vote being a vote for uncertainty in a lot of respects. So it was clearly a rejection of the status quo, but it wasn't really a vote for anything specific. And no the, one knew the path at the right. time. No yeah. one knew the path, no one knew what Brexit meant. The new Prime Minister, Mrs May, her original formulation was Brexit means Brexit, which bought her some time, but perhaps didn't really clarify the issue mm -hmm. by nature. So I think the debate has become a little bit polarised between the idea we have a soft Brexit, which perhaps means that essentially the UK may institutionally leave some of the machinery of the EU, so it formally is outside the EU. But nonetheless, it remains de facto a part of things like the single market for goods and services. And as a result, it has a status perhaps similar to that which Norway has in the European economic area, where it's not fully institutionally a part of the EU, but in lots of economic and financial respects, it's effectively part of the EU. So that's perhaps the usual definition of soft Brexit. Then at the other extreme, and I think it's perhaps easier to characterize the two extremes than it is the intermediate states, the other kind of extreme version of a hard Brexit, or the hardest form of Brexit, would be for the UK just to walk away from the institutions of the EU and by nature revert to what countries which aren't, don't have special agreements, I with the EU, or via the EU with third countries, what their relationships in the international economic sphere are. So kind of reverting to the WTO rules for trade, for example. Now, I think if that's the definition of hard Brexit, I think it's a very unlikely outcome of this whole process. It's just too draconian. Right. Too draconian, too costly. Equally, if the definition I gave of soft Brexit, I think that's an unlikely outcome. The Europeans can't really allow that. Otherwise, you'd have... Everyone wanting it. A rush to the exits. Yeah. yeah. And I think also, I mean, it's probably not politically feasible in the UK to essentially say we're giving up having an influence over the rules through the institutions of the EU and yet we're still going to abide by the rules to retain access into the single market and so forth. So this debate about hard versus soft Brexit, if you characterize it as the two kind of polar extremes, it's a little bit misleading because the reality is we're probably almost inevitably going to end up somewhere between those. So it's not the hardest form, it's not the softest form, it's somewhere in between. And, and that's probably the nature of the negotiations we're going to see over the next few years. Where in that space are we going to end up? What I think we've learned over the last few months, and I think financial markets and observers have come to recognize, is that it may be not so easy to see this as a very continuous spectrum of possibilities where you can just pick out where you want to be. The Prime Minister has said in her speech to the Conservative Party conference that she really has two key objectives she wants to have in place. The first is she wants to reassert control over migration into the UK, both migration from outside the EU but also migration from inside the EU, put that back under British control. 
Second, she said, is she doesn't want the European Court... Could she do that unilaterally? That's something that's very hard to reconcile with continued membership of or participation in the single market. The European side, so the residual EU, the 27 countries on the other side of the negotiating table, I think their position is the EU is based around the assertion of the famous four freedoms, the free movement of goods, the free movement of people, the free movement of capital, the free movement of services. I think one characterization of what Mrs. May is trying to ask for is, well, we'd like three of those three four. Three of the freedoms, but, no, <laughs> but not, we'll the, control not the, the final one. We'll, 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 we'll control the people. Exactly. We won't have the, we'll have no uh, freedom movement of people. I think that is something that is unacceptable to the rest of Europe, partly because the whole setup of the EU is based on the sort of indivisibility of these four freedoms. And second, related, as you said, if you allow some cherry picking, we'll have three but not the fourth, because we don't like the fourth, you're inviting every member of the EU to say, well, we'll have this combination but not the ones we don't like, and the whole structure will then begin to break down. The setup is all based upon a set of compromises and some give and take. If you allow each country just to take what it wants but not give what it needs to give in order to achieve that, I think it just becomes an unworkable system. And at what point do the voters who voted for Brexit get a little fed up that there's been no movement on migration and securing the UK's borders? Politics is a business which, as an economist, is sometimes seems like a strange business. I don't think people in the UK are expecting this to be delivered overnight. I don't think their tolerance for delay is infinite, however. And I think one of the reasons why Mrs May has set a number of deadlines, notably the deadline that she intends to invoke this famous Article 50 of the treaty, which is the mechanism triggering the negotiations for exiting the EU. She intends to trigger this process by the end of March next year. I think it's to reassure the majority of people who voted in the referendum yeah, that we're on the way There's a path forward. And path forward. Second thing I'd say is, and I think this is an important thing to keep in mind, even though Mrs May herself was on the Remain side, the government has embraced the view that the British people have spoken and their interpretation of what it means the British people have spoken is essentially these threefold things. First, institutionally you need separation from the EU. Second, there must be a reassertion of control over migration. Third, the ability of the European Court of Justice so the Luxembourg-based European institution, Supreme Court of Europe, if you like, its jurisdiction over the UK has to be replaced by British courts. And I think if she moves forward on those dimensions... Those are not unreasonable conclusions to draw after a vote to leave right. the EU. Right, right. I exactly. So It I may think, be hard to engineer it. Right. The way I would see it is that a failure to deliver on those dimensions, maybe not by the end of March next year, but to set up a framework which is being acted on through the middle of next year, which respects those sort of three key negotiating positions. Failing to do that will be very politically challenging for Mrs May, both within her own party, because there's a strong Eurosceptic wing within the Conservative Party, which if she fails to deliver on those dimensions, I think we'll see her as not accepting the decision of the referendum. But perhaps more importantly and more widely, I think she will run into a broader political set of challenges. So the domestic political imperative, 
both broadly and from a party point of view, is that Mrs. May has to deliver on those types of things. But that runs into the position taken by the people on the other side of the negotiating table, the EU27, who say, well, once you're moving down the path to achieve those things, then soft Brexit basically doesn't work. And so once you start to move down this spectrum from going from soft Brexit, where effectively you stay inside the single market, but you give up some of the institutional. If you're not accepting the jurisdiction of the European Court, all those regulations and harmonization of regulation and business standards and competition law and so forth, which is what makes the single market work, there's no one to enforce that, no one to judge that. So you're essentially putting yourself outside the single market once you insist that you're not going to subject yourself to the European Court of Justice. Once you're outside the single market, I think people tend to think maybe you can get close, but without this oversight from the European Court. I think that's very difficult to do, because once you're outside the single market, what's the next stage? Well, you can stay within the customs union, some people say. Customs union means that Britain can have free trade with the rest of Europe, but crucially in a customs union, the European institutions will agree the trade relationships with so-called third countries, with China, with the US, with Canada, and so forth. And Britain has to accept what that trade negotiation is. Now, Which runs a little bit counter to what they think they voted for. Exactly. And what's more, you have a whole new department of government in the UK, which Mrs May has set up, which is specifically designed to sign trade agreements with third countries. So it doesn't seem likely that that's a natural stopping point. So where are you beyond that? Well, you can have a free trade agreement between the UK and the EU. A free trade agreement sounds quite close to the single market, right? You're still able to trade without tariffs. But in practice, it's not that close to the single market. First, because a free trade agreement typically only involves trading goods, not trade in services. services yeah. And obviously, for the UK, business and financial services are a very important part of its economy and a very important part of its trading relationships. Second, when you're having a free trade agreement, Obviously, there's a danger from the European point of view that an American company can export something to the UK and then re-export it into the EU to avoid any tariff that the EU may put on American goods. So it's inherent to a free trade area agreement that you have some sort of restrictions on what the local content of exports is. They have to be basically and That's UK a very goods. thorny issue, particularly in trade negotiations right. these days. For sure. And it means that everything that's exported has to be checked. There's a whole bureaucratic process. So free trade in that context is not that free, and certainly nowhere near as free as the current single market arrangement means, where you're able just to send goods across borders within Europe, really, with very little bureaucratic intervention. And then finally, just to amplify what I said a moment ago about the nature of regulation and so forth, the whole point of the single market has been to create a harmonized set of regulations and so forth, such that on a day-to-day -day basis, firms don't have to worry about exporting something to yeah, France Rolls or Germany. Rolls-Royce can make the same engine for an aircraft right. in the UK as it can in France. And it meets all the same environmental regulations right. and so forth and so on. Once you're outside the EU, you're not subject to the same European court jurisdictions. Either you just have to follow them anyway, which is a very difficult thing to do if your vote was to be outside, outside the European yeah. sphere. But the moment you introduce a new set of regulations... You're going to end up at the WTO right. pretty soon. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the thing is, when we have this debate, hard versus soft Brexit, there are those who think it can be very soft. I'm not sure that's either politically feasible or economically feasible. Equally, I think the hardest, very hard form of just walking away and reverting to the WTO rules, that doesn't seem very likely either. 
The most likely outcome of this is we're going to have a long drawn out process where we try and find an acceptable point to both sides in the space in between. That's probably not going to be as soft as many people may have thought in the past. Since the vote, the economic data coming out of the UK has actually been not bad and somewhat surprising. The sterling has declined sharply, mm. as, as one might expect, mm. but the growth rates have been a little bit better than expected since the Leave vote. How's that changed your view on the likelihood of a recession in the UK? Right. Even immediately after the referendum, we had a sort of formulation that Britain would flirt with a recession, and certainly we didn't anticipate a steep downturn in the UK economy akin to what we'd seen post Lehman or in the early 1980s or the early 1990s. Our view was that the uncertainty generated by the outcome of the referendum and the uncertainty about what that would lead to, which is reflected in what we've just been discussing, that would weigh on some investment projects. And at least on our analysis, and I think this is shared by the Bank of England and other official forecasters, is that there are still reasons for concern on that dimension. As the pound devalues, you're going to see some inflationary pressure, right. which may give the monetary authorities a little bit less wiggle room. I think that's true. It will also eat into the real value of incomes yeah. and therefore probably at some point begin to dampen consumption and spending going forward. But I think this slowdown in investment that we were anticipating, we don't really see any evidence that that isn't happening. We never thought it was going to be dramatic. And we do expect to see in our current forecast still a slowdown in the UK economy next year. But the consumer and the sort of retail and services part of the economy, which is less immediately vulnerable to these uncertainty effects, not only has that stayed relatively robust as we expected, but if anything, it's tended to be boosted and perform more strongly than we expected. So yes, the UK economy has surprised us to the upside, and I think many others. Probably the underlying story on the kind of investment side, we haven't really seen reason That'll to change that. play out that. over a, be a slower burn. I think that's right. And it's been a little bit, shall we say, obscured by the fact that the household sector, the retail sector, not only has maintained its momentum, but has actually begun a little bit to accelerate. How persistent that is in the face of an underlying slowdown in the economy next year, I think remains to be seen. But I think there are still reasons to expect that the economy will slow in the first half of next year, albeit relative to where we were three or four months ago. I think that slowdown now is still compatible with reasonably, by European standards, reasonably steady pace of positive growth, with the risk of a recession moving into negative territory and seeing a contraction of the economy having diminished quite a lot. So let's talk specifically about the labor market. How big of an impact do you think a hard Brexit or one of the harder Brexit scenarios and the inflation that we are seeing incipient signs of, how big an impact will that have on unemployment in the UK? I mean, our view is that we'll see a slowdown in the economy, but a slowdown that keeps us away from recession and largely reflecting necessary adjustments to the new world we live in in a post-Brexit environment. One of the good things about the UK is that through the efforts of the preceding 30 years, there is a lot of flexibility in the economy in general, and perhaps relative to European Particularly relative to the continent, Correct. yes, yes. And particularly in that context on the labor yeah. market dimension. So the ability of the UK economy to adjust with perhaps not seeing too significant rises in unemployment, I think is probably relatively high. 
So we don't expect to see unemployment you know, move back towards much higher levels that we've seen in the early 1980s and early 1990s in the UK. Indeed, even in the advent of this very deep recession we had in the UK post Lehman, unemployment did not rise in line with the sort of historical relationship with economic activity. Employment creation remained relatively strong through the recessionary period. We don't really see any reason for that to change. Structurally, the UK has become an economy that's better able to manage through these adjustments and through these cyclical swings without seeing big fluctuations in employment. What's more, I think policymakers in general, and frankly the Bank of England in particular, has made quite a lot of play of the fact that its policy orientation is designed to avoid the loss of jobs, to support the labour market. So there are those critics of the current policies of central banks in general, including in yeah, the, the UK. Same, we have the same debate in the United right. States about the twin goals. and right. this. But I think the critics who say, you know, negative rates, QE, and the consequences of QE on yields and the flat yield curve, they're hurting savers. And I think the leading officials at the Bank of England have been quite explicit in saying, in the current context, if it's a choice about hurting savers temporarily, in order to preserve jobs and avoid that we generate all the long-term unemployment and kind of dislocations that pushing people into unemployment causes, better to impose those temporary costs on savers in order to support the economy and particularly to support job creation in the economy rather than uh, taking risks with unemployment. So, I mean, my conclusion is, given the slowdown in the economy, the UK is structurally in a good position to try and manage through that without generating higher levels of unemployment or high levels of unemployment. And I think not only is that true in terms of the structures in the economy, I think policymakers are prepared to quite aggressively use their more cyclical smoothing tools to achieve lower unemployment losses, even if that comes at the cost of others. Now, let's talk about the European markets more broadly. They've held up pretty well in the wake of the Brexit vote. Do you see that complacency or cautious optimism prevailing as we move forward? I think the way we characterize the Brexit shock with the benefit of hindsight is it's largely an idiosyncratic and still an adverse shock to the UK. That has been accommodated, at least thus far, through quite a big movement in sterling, as you mentioned, which has inflationary consequences and other negative effects. But the flexibility of the UK's exchange rate has proved to be an important shock absorber to begin to make the necessary adjustments to the new world. But the spillovers into the other parts of Europe, continental Europe, and indeed to the broader world economy, both economically and financially, have been relatively modest. And in some sense, for good reason, relatively modest. The UK is just not a big enough part of the world economy, or even ultimately a big enough market for the European economy to have severe disruption. The risk was, which I think we pointed to ahead of the referendum, if Brexit is seen as a sort of institutional breakdown or a catalyst for an institutional breakdown in Europe, European governance, EU governance, particularly Euro area governance, has proved quite weak in the past. Markets have challenged that in the sovereign and banking crisis we saw five years ago. Some efforts have been made to improve that. We've got a number of new institutions, the banking union, the OMT of the ECB, other backstops essentially to try and improve this. Those haven't been fully developed, they haven't been fully tested. This could be a new challenge. If those had failed, we could have seen a big contagion. The good news is 
that we haven't seen a big challenge, or at least those backstops have proved sufficiently robust to get us through. And I think that's reflected in the fact that European markets more widely have not dramatically changed in the face of Brexit. But that's, I think, important to say <laughs> that is not necessarily showing that European markets are in a robustly healthy condition. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> I mean, the European growth is tepid, mm -hmm. as it seems to have been for a very long time now, which suggests a role for continued monetary policy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the costs and the side effects of QE, mm -hmm. particularly this negative interest rates have come into focus this year, particularly if they've moved on to more and more unusual or extraordinary measures. To what extent are policymakers worried about counterproductive impacts of monetary policy? And do you see a role for fiscal policy going forward? Is it possible Europe doesn't have a central fiscal policy, but could policymakers there push a little bit harder on the fiscal side? Yes, there is concern and quite broad-based concern that monetary policy is running into buffers. I think there's a general concern that the effectiveness of monetary policy in terms of providing easier conditions and stimulating the economy is running into the sand. In Europe, we have a very bank-centered financial system that's different from, say, here in the US. So when we cut rates, to the extent that puts pressure on banks' earnings because you're squeezing the margins of banks and so forth, that means that maybe banks are less willing to lend than they might otherwise be at these yeah, the very moments. the transmission rates. mechanism is, is beginning for, to break is, down. Is breaks down yeah. So to the extent you're operating through banks, which you have to do in Europe, because they're overwhelmingly the largest part of the financial sector, this is a reason to perhaps view with some caution the ability of monetary policy to do more. An additional concern, which is not that just monetary policy isn't working, it's that attempts to ease monetary policy are actually having counterproductive effects. I think that's a concern which is particularly acute in what we used to call core Europe, Northern Europe, Germany and the Netherlands, where the combination of negative rates and very significant QE, sovereign asset purchases, is not only creating a low yield environment, but also one where the yield curve is very flat. And for financial institutions that rely on term premium, so a slope of the yield curve to make money, or financial institutions like pension funds that have defined benefit liabilities, they're promising to pay a 1% return, and yet they're holding assets which maybe yield only a negative return. return. The business model of these institutions is under, let's put it mildly, significant stress yeah. in this uh, environment. Well, and the European <laughs> banks, by and large, are in very difficult. We're seeing low single-digit returns on capital right. at the moment. So our conclusion is the scope for monetary policy to do more is limited, and in some parts of Europe at least, attempts to do more may not just have no effect, they may have a negative effect. So I think it's natural in that context to look to fiscal policy to pick up the baton and provide a greater amount of stimulus. Frankly, in our forecast, the only reason the euro area is growing above trend, so we're seeing any eating into the slack in the economy, any forces to bring down unemployment, any forces to reduce the domestic disinflationary pressures, is because there's a fiscal easing going on. That fiscal easing is caused by a variety of factors in the short term. The need to pay for feeding, clothing and housing the refugees that came to Germany last year. Right. Uh, Unintentional stimulus. Right. Yeah. The fact that security and defence spending is going up in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks in France and Belgium, also unintentional right. yeah. uh, stimulus. 
And the fact we have elections in all the big five euro area countries. Which is usually good for stimulus. It's usually yeah. good for stimulus too. So those are not perhaps the best reasons, but they are leading to an easier fiscal policy, which is sustaining demand, allowing this above trend growth. But crucially, particularly in the heavily indebted, high deficit, low fiscal credibility, southern or Latin European countries, their ability to sustain this fiscal easing to have this above trend growth rests very heavily on the fact that their ability to issue in markets at low rates is underwritten by the fact that the ECB is active in those markets, present in those markets via its sovereign asset purchases QE program. So that's the sense. So in a way, Europe is working. Right. <laughs> well, it's working. The union is working, right. yes. It, it, it's, it's working in the sense that we're avoiding a big disaster. Right. It's not working in the sense that we're finding a solution to deeper problems. No, but but the credibility inherent in the institutions is translating into the right. weaker parts of the... Right. I think uh, that's right. But I think it also makes the point, back to your question, about monetary policy is diminishing in effectiveness, fiscal policy is, has to take up more of the role. There's truth in that for the reasons I think I've said. It's also true, though, that the distinction between monetary and fiscal policy is to some extent blurring here. Um, so the ability of fiscal policy in these heavily indebted, high fiscal deficit, low fiscal credibility countries to ease fiscal policy is dependent on the fact that the central banks buying their debt, which is often characterized QE as a monetary policy operation, but here it has important fiscal implications as well. Our view is there is a lot of scope or a lot of expectation for fiscal policy. Later this month, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr Hammond, will make his autumn statement in Parliament. This will be his statement of the spending plans for next year. And we expect him to announce some easing of fiscal policy. There's a debate about how much he needs to do, given that the economy is holding up better than many people had anticipated. There's a debate about how much room he has because tax receipts have weakened in the aftermath mm -hmm. of Brexit, maybe not because of Brexit. Our expectation, though, is that he will deliver quite a significant set of supportive, stimulative measures, largely in the form of increased infrastructure, public infrastructure spending, not necessarily on big headline projects, although there are a number of bigger headline projects in the works, but more generally in sort of supporting school construction, road construction and, and improvements and so forth. And we anticipate that to add about half a percentage point to growth in the economy, other things equal, over the next couple of years. So I think that's quite a significant easing of fiscal policy. That is being facilitated by the fact that the new government, Mr. Hammond, the new chancellor, have decided to abandon some of the fiscal rules that his predecessor, Mr. Osborne, and the preceding government had put in place to bring the UK budget, uh, budget into balance, balance, into balance yeah. by the end of this parliament, so by right. the end of this decade, effectively. We are looking to Mr. Hammond to introduce a new set of rules. I don't think he will try and operate completely outside a formal framework of rules. But those rules are almost certainly going to be less onerous, less restrictive. And that's opened up some space for him to do more. Provided, which is our expectation, provided that financial markets and particularly international investors continue to have confidence yeah. in the macroeconomic policy framework in the UK, in the fundamental sustainability of the UK public finances, in the credibility of the Bank of England's inflation target, which will cap the potential for borrowing costs of the government to rise very significantly. Hugh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. 
That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on November 8, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.